Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Bomber here. Really happy today to be joined by Dr. Rovi Brannan, who is the Vice Provost at Continuum College at the University of Washington. We're going to talk about the 60-year curriculum. We're going to talk about trends around adult learners and the future of everything. But before we get into that, I want to welcome Rovi to the show. Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike, great to be here. You've been doing some interesting work. We're going to be talking about what you have going on at Continuum College. Before we get to that, we always begin by hearing our guest's origin story. Spin us a yarn, tell us a tale. How did you get to this point in your professional life? Well, Mike, you're talking to somebody who should not be sitting here talking to you about higher education at all and certainly shouldn't be an expert in anything. My high school counselor looked at me and said, Roby, you shouldn't be thinking about a college future for yourself, right? Let's be realistic about your grades. You don't have good math scores. Uh, I remember being that junior in high school, sitting down. You know, it was one of these where the line was down the hall. Everybody gets 15 minutes. I went in for my 15 minutes and suddenly the future that I thought I had, which was, hey, I'll go to college like many of my peers, was just devastated in that moment. I have that story, by the way, it comes from a lot of fellow learners that I come in contact with. But I found my way back in. I was a heavy metal rock drummer and I played music and our community college had a non-credit certificate program in audio engineering. And suddenly I realized with the right motivator, I could do math because you got free studio time for your band. Mm. And uh, a couple of years later, based on that experience, I said, I need to go back to school, mm. right? I had owned my own business at that point. I had worked for pizza delivery places. I had done lots of different jobs. My son had been born. It was time to really think more seriously about going back to school, but college was not for me. I knew that that message had been ingrained in my head. So I'm sitting here in front of you today with my origin story saying, I shouldn't be here. Mm. Um, and yet I found my way through a system that wasn't necessarily intended for adult learners, non-traditional learners. Thankfully, community college saved my life with that program, plus the basics that I needed to go back to school. Then I went to the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, began working at a museum and really fell in love with the idea that people like me need an opportunity to be able to learn. So I got my master's degree in instructional systems technology, and there was this crazy new tech called the web. Mm. And I said, we can actually use this for learning. And so in the mid-90s, I built my first online classroom for the web with the intent of helping other adult learners who didn't think they could find the time to go back to school have time to go back to college. Mm -hmm. So from there, went on, decided to get my doctorate at Indiana University, found myself at Eli Lilly and Company, helping them transform training for their field sales force, got an opportunity to go to the University of Wisconsin and lead a research lab in learning technology. So you might imagine with that pathway, I was super excited and did that for a number of years. I became associate dean for online learning for the state of Wisconsin and had a wonderful offer to come out and lead one of the most incredible and historically important units in adult and continuing education in the country at the University of Washington here in Seattle. And so now I sit here in front of you as a vice provost for Continuum College, which is the continuing education arm of the University of Washington. And this past year, we served more than 60,000 learners out of our office, adult and continuing education partners. So excited to be here. That's a little bit of my origin story, but it's an origin story that says I shouldn't be here in the first place, but I'm so excited that I am. And then it also kind of comes full circle in that the, the population who you're serving in many ways are different types of you. You know, you were engaging throughout a long period of time there dating back to the 20th century up <laughs> through contemporary times and then also looking ahead one of the concepts that i've talked about briefly on the show is this idea of a 60-year curriculum and how 
continuing education, adult education. I was listening to Hall & Oates adult education as my walk-up music. But as someone who's been thinking about lifelong learning and the fact that folks are getting to live longer and then are rethinking how do we learn outside of that brief four to six, eight year window, maybe at the beginning of your professional life, how do we think about learning across a much longer period of time? Can you catch us up a little bit on the concept of a 60-year curriculum and your take on it? Absolutely. First of all, thanks for helping to date me just a little bit. Uh, I never really thought of myself as having learned in the previous century, but uh, that really does put a fine point on it for, for those of us in the Gen X category. We are still getting older despite the fact that it always felt like we were the younger siblings of the baby boom generation in many ways. Mm. Um, it's such a fascinating time, really, in higher education more generally. One of the big frames that's so exciting and interesting, but also generates some anxiety for people, is the, the fact that we are living longer and healthier lives. I know the pandemic has had an impact on that. I actually think that's going to be an accelerant because medical science is actually accelerating theory into practice as a result of the pandemic. So I think it'll be a temporary pullback. Mm. But if you look at uh, a book called The 100-Year Life, Living and Working in the Age of Longevity by uh, Grattan and Scott, they're from the London School of Economics, a really readable book. It will change your life. It'll change your perspective on life. Our 18-year-olds today have a better than 50% chance to live past 100. Many of them will live to 115, 120, 125 years old. Mm. And that can be either an exciting proposition or a really frightening and anxiety-driving proposition, depending on how you view learning and aging. I think when we overlay on top of that, the speed of change in society today, let's think about what we didn't have 10 to 12 years ago in mobile technology, and now project that change over six decades going forward for people. And you begin to say, is a two to four year knowledge inoculation from 18 to 22 for those privileged enough to be able to get it, which is the minority of our society today, mm -hmm. that is not in any way going to constitute enough education to be able to take you through what will be probably three and four careers. And I think we're on the front end of this in the Gen X generation. I'm on my third career. I know many people are three and four different careers, not jobs within the same career path, but really very different kinds of careers. And this is accelerating. And so we look at different careers, different opportunities. I like to say, you might think someone at 40 that we and traditionally think there might be too old for a traditional higher education. You might think they have another 45 years to work. Right. Right. And so even if they had a 20 year career before that, shifting careers at 40 today, or especially as the current generation moves into that age group, it's really going to be part of the way we're thinking about the future. And so higher education is going to have to evolve and adapt to be prepared for this uh, it, it really exciting, but challenging future if we stay the same in terms of how we operate today. Yeah. And then the, the type of work that people will be doing, how they engage with their professional lives, how they think about who pays them and what their professional identity is. You know, are they a company man or a woman or, or are they more of their own business or their own hustles going? There are a lot of changes that maybe are front and center when we think about 20-year-olds or 30-year-olds. But those changes are also impacting all of us across the full range of our lives. You had some thoughts on the, the great resignation and some of the broader shifts that have been happening around the workforce. Uh, can you catch us up a little on your thinking there? Yeah, it's interesting to take a look. I think there are all the factors that you can see talked about everywhere around the great resignation, certainly remote work, or I don't want to come back because of the pandemic, or I just I've had an epiphany over the last two years as a person, and I'm going to go pursue my passion. 
I think that's accelerated trends that were already happening prior to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to look at this world, broadly speaking, of Web3, right? Whether that's, I think we can talk about crypto, you can talk about NFTs. I think you could talk about, as I've just been reading recently about DAOs or DAOs or distributed autonomous organizations. And what's happening is most of that is not being taught in traditional schools or institutions. So learning systems are evolving on the fly through streaming individuals, creators, the entrepreneurs themselves becoming also teachers of how to use their technologies or their approaches to these things. So in some ways, we're not just seeing a potential secondary economic system evolving. We're seeing a secondary education system evolve, which is very fast, very flexible based on reputational learning, as much as the specifics of a credential coming from a specific place. I watch that as sort of a future indicator of what might be shifting more broadly in society. Even if there's an economic collapse that leads to some pullback in some of those areas, our economy is forever changed because these pieces are now a part of that. But part of what that's enabling is, I think, as you you hear the reasons for the great resignation, I think one that's maybe uh, not talked about a lot is, is people saying, you know what, I can have that lifestyle too. I don't have to have a boss anymore. I can have a really flexible lifestyle and make a decent living, maybe even get lucky and make a really good living if I buy the right board, got a NFT at the right moment and sell that for you know tens of thousands or even millions of dollars. But even aside from those sort of lottery winner stories within the crypto world, a lot of people are really using this to build a portfolio lifestyle, change the way they think about work. And so what I think will happen is you'll have people, you were saying a company person may be working directly for the company. I think will be all of those things in the future. People will take times in their lives where they are a company person, they're earning, they need the stability. Maybe that's while they're in parenthood for some people, they move out of that phase of their lives or before they get there, they say, I'm going to try to open a new business in a new way. I'm going to run things in a different way. And what's interesting about that phenomenon that we're seeing in higher education is people are saying, I'm going to start a new business, not because I'm going to make a million dollars or get wealthy off of it, because I want to learn something new Mm. that I can't learn by working for my current employer. So I might do a business for three or four years as a learning exercise and then drop that and go back into the regular workforce with the knowledge that I've gained from that business. So these are big shifts in the way that people are living outside of, I think, the, the mass resignation as we may know it as it relates to the pandemic. And I think speak to some of these broader shifts in society where the tools are not just social media, it's business tools and other tools that are being put directly in the hands of everyone and not just a few people in society. So how do we prepare people for that future on top of longevity? I think it's really exciting and it's going to be an energizing future, but it will be fraught along the way, I think. We're recording this conversation in Zoom. Learners no longer are necessarily tied to a physical classroom. We're unencumbered by the limitations of having to be in the same physical space. Same thing for instructors. Like I've heard a lot of Folks in higher ed, very happy that they don't necessarily have to go to their office for office hours anymore. What about that change? I know that's been something that's been part of higher ed and continuing ed. You know, there were correspondence schools by mail. I saw that was even part of the the history of the University of Washington. Any thoughts on the media that we use to deliver instruction and how the pandemic might have changed things and how you're reaching adult learners using some of those emerging technologies? Yeah, it's. I think adult learners have always been at the forefront in terms of advancing new technologies to the university because they learn at the back door of the university in many ways. And that's there's actually a very famous book by Wiedemeyer, Charles Wiedemeyer, 
uh, learning at the back door, which is a seminal work from 1981. Some of the history of our field is, is in that space. Adult learners have always used different technologies than the mainstream, and our campuses were designed as finishing schools in many ways, a safe place for 18-year-olds to have a place to explore life and move forward. But adults don't necessarily need that same safe space. They may need the same education. And so correspondence schools, in many ways, radio-based education. We were the first in the state of Washington to deliver courses in Washington state using radio. And there are still books you can go find. They're wonderful books to go read if you think technology is going to save us about oh my goodness, radio is the end of the university. It's going to reach everyone. Or then television, the same kind of mantra. And of course, now uh, the internet, I think, is there. There are changes that are happening. And so it's interesting. I'm, as we already talked about, so a Gen Xer focused on educational technology. And way back in the old days, maybe five years ago or seven years ago, I would find myself just begging and pleading faculty to please think about teaching the non-traditional adults students and teaching online was an anathema. Low quality. I have for the first time in my life begun to hear from faculty being able to teach online as a human right. And I should be allowed to teach online because I need that flexibility as a human. So it is faculty are changing, professors are changing as well. They're beginning to see the freedoms of some of these things. What I would say about this, I think we need that flexibility to reach that person who can't come to our campus. Uh, we need that flexibility to reach people in their workplaces while they're working and providing professional development along the way and not thinking it's always going to be separate. But what we really need is the flexibility to help people learn when and where they best need to learn. And that will be different for each learner. And I think this is also where the workplace is evolving. And this is what we're talking about in our own workplaces. It's not just the conversation of full remote and fully in the office. It really is, what is the office really good for in terms of work? When do we want to come together and be in person together and work together and try to create? Sometimes that's when we're trying to create something new. For example, we find that to be better as we experiment in person, but then when we need to concentrate, maybe we're better off working independently. Education's gonna see the same thing happen. There are gonna be times where you might want an educational experience where you really want to be in person. It's interesting when we talk about people in the tech world here in Seattle, we sometimes hear, oh no, I don't want an online experience. I want to be in person. I spend my entire day on my computer and I want to socialize while I'm learning. And so really what I hope we see is a future evolving where we have the right education for each person at the right time in their lives. And that means like you could be an online learner at one time in your life, and then you really want to be in a generative space with other people learning together for some other kind of learning experience. And so that's the future that I hope we see. And I think I see that evolving as we think about hybrid experiences, some people in the classroom, some people out, maybe some experiences where we're doing the didactic part or the lecture part online, but then you come together to do uh, project-based learning. So that's kind of what we see evolving and happening much like work. It's not gonna be one thing or the other for any given audience, but it really will be how do we blend all of these options together to meet people over these really long lifespans. Yeah. Yeah. The both end is coming in. One of the challenges that emerged in particular through the pandemic is the idea of the digital divide and that some learners or not even learners, but when we think about education, it's in the context of learning. Some folks just don't think that their smartphone or their library computer or their computer, if they have it, is a tool that they can use to learn from. And then others maybe don't have the same level of access for as full an experience through those online tools. I know access is a big part of your mission and it is a place where these online tools are expanding access and addressing some of those gaps. 
But at the same time, some folks, maybe older learners or folks who have other challenges really aren't being reached through online learning. I'd love to hear a little more about your perspective around access, the digital divide, and the role that continuing ed can play there. I think the pandemic has really highlighted the divides across society in so many ways, whether that's healthcare, uh, whether that's access to the internet. And certainly we have all heard stories across the country of uh, students in poorer areas that aren't well served by the, by the current internet infrastructure sitting in parking lots of libraries or parking lots of their schools, trying to get enough of a signal to be able to complete their online exercises. Really in many ways, totally unable to use something like Zoom because there's not enough connected bandwidth. And it's interesting to see, and it was happening before, but I think it's also accelerating higher education institutions now beginning to talk about things like infrastructure beyond education, because we can't deliver the education communities need unless they have the infrastructure in place. And so I think the pandemic has highlighted that. I think we're seeing some renewed energy behind uh, increasing those infrastructure capabilities in some of these communities. And so I, I'm hopeful that we will see improvements in the ability to provide access through digital means as people move forward. But just as I was saying a moment ago, I think this is why we can't rely on a single method or a single way of reaching everybody. We also know from research, for example, that in some cases, people who don't have a strong sense of schooling or education, and sometimes these are coming from low SES background families that don't have a lot of books in the home that may not have access to computers in the home, for example, that they really benefit from getting into a face-to-face -face experience first and really connecting with human beings that help them see that they can make it and move forward. That's important to recognize that just putting something on the internet is not going to suddenly create access for a lot of people. Yeah. When we think about the massive open online course aspect of what's happening in higher education, these are sometimes called MOOCs, mm -hmm. uh, massive open online courses. The data is really clear that the intent of higher education institutions was to create more access for more people by making these courses freely or low cost to many people. And what we're discovering is people who already understand and know how to go to college are the ones most likely to take advantage of these programs being put out by colleges and universities. Yeah. And so that's another divide that's a digital divide. It's even knowing how to college, I call it, where college is a verb for the future. And we really talk about how do we college going forward? How do we help people college in a better way or go to college, be a part of this? And so there's a there's a non-digital divide as well, which is a, a, an academic divide that we have to address. Mm -hmm. And by having digital technologies, the great thing we can do is we can create different kinds of pathways. Even if the education is not delivered that way, technology can actually highlight how people might find other ways to get to what they would hope to do in life. So it's not always through your four-year university. Right? It might be through your community college. It might be through a private provider at times. It might be that your employer has a great program that can help you take that next step. And what people don't have is real clarity and insight into that right now and across the board. So that's another divide, just knowing what's out there, knowing what's available, understanding that um, there's tremendous educational opportunity right now is probably, there's probably more educational opportunity today than there has ever been in this country for adult learners. And that's growing. But if you're not aware of that, that's also a divide. So I think we need the technological divide. We have an information divide that we need to make sure people that understand uh, what they can get from this. And we have a cultural divide, mm -hmm. right? And that's the even more difficult challenge is that we have a growing cultural divide where some people really do understand the value and the benefits of college. And for other folks, uh, it's seen as something that gets in the way or it has a political motivator behind it. 
And we really can't afford to let that drive the way we perceive higher education in this country. We have to serve our entire country as we move forward. It's going to be essential. And our country is only one part of the globe. The, the entire globe needs uh, this as well. But as we look at the United States, the particular issues we're facing, and in some cases where those divides fall out along economics, you can then look and right behind that is who's educated through higher education. So we really have to be mindful of that as we move forward. Yeah, I'll adopt that. Colleging, just like adulting and uh, brunching. I use all of those nouns as verbs. So why not? Colleging, I like it. And then the the skills development and the the challenges around skills gaps is another space that I know folks in continuing education are looking at, but it's also something that folks in the enterprise and in the workforce are looking at and thinking about as someone who's right at that point of intersection between higher ed and the workforce and adult learners who are looking to advance or stay relevant, not lose ground in terms of their professional life and their prospects. What are your thoughts around the future of work and the skills gaps that are emerging nowadays? Yeah, it's um, exciting right now. One of the things I've got going on is I'm in several conversations now with chief human resource officers of major companies in Seattle. And so more of these need to happen because what we're doing is we're beginning to understand each other a little bit better, right? They're beginning to understand here's what higher education can do for your workforce in a different way than maybe you've considered it before. But here's also the limitations of what we're saying. When I talk about what I call the 60-year curriculum, and and if we have a 100-year life, we say a 100-year life might need a 60-year curriculum of studies to uh, support you through that working life. One of the elements of that that we think is essential is digital credentialing. And when I talk to employers, their building systems on their side, it can be called badging at times, or it could have other sort of names. People talk about digital credentials on the blockchain and so forth, but forget the technology. It's really about saying a piece of paper, which is how we still deliver our diplomas today, has about four bits of information, your name, the signatures of two people you probably never met at your institution, and a very broad-based notion of what you studied, mm -hmm. biology or psychology, but that's it. And increasingly, employers are saying, we want more granularity in understanding what skills people are coming out of college with. Now, interestingly, I when I talk to a chief human resources officer, I say, this is a two-way street. We also want to know what they've learned within your organization as they come back to retool for higher education. And so digital credentialing is a way of creating a more seamless set of pathways where institutions and employers can begin to speak to each other about employment opportunities and educational opportunities for the people in their organizations. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, for the learner, and I, and I know this is only one aspect of digital credentialing, but it's an example of where I think the connectivity is in its infancy and how it will grow. This has tremendous benefits for the learner. When I get into conversations about digital credentialing as one example, it's almost always between higher ed and employers. But the real energy is, and there's some great tools, they're very early, they're not out there, I wouldn't say, hey, go download these if you want to try it now, they're coming. But for example, once your skills are digitally represented at a pretty small level, like, hey, this person knows how to do these four things really well, they know Python programming, for example, then you can start using these databases which exists, which say, what are the hot skills that exist today? And so I've already seen the first app that says for somebody who has their skills laid out this way, they can start to see when their skills are declining in terms of what employers are asking for naturally, or maybe a hidden skill that they didn't even know they had, 
that's really starting to skyrocket and maybe they have great opportunities out there. But those kind of tools will start to let you know when you need to retool. So this is a little bit about what the future looks like. But where we are today is everybody's trying to figure this out. Employers are trying to figure this out with higher education. We have companies that are working with us to try to work in between companies and large employers. And then if you're an employee, you know, right now you have so many job opportunities. Take advantage of that. Take advantage of your career options. Explore things right now, but recognize that over time, you're going to need to retool, reskill, and be able to come back into the workforce. As we look at the tech employers in Seattle or the engineering employers here, the aeronautics employers that are in our area, we have a very highly educated workforce just as a matter of course. 62% of people in Seattle have a college degree already. That's the highest in the nation. What we're seeing evolve in those kinds of corporations is a sort of hyper-educated citizenry where they have maybe not just a bachelor's degree and one master's degree, but in some cases, a bachelor's degree and three or four master's degrees in completely different areas because the vastness of these organizations uh, and the requirements for working in these modern companies at very high levels just requires you to have really broad-based working knowledge. And whether it's certificates or master's degrees, people are going back and continuing to learn to be competitive, especially in these hyper-educated spaces that we see here. That's happening nationwide, but at a different level and at a different scale. So. I think employers need higher education to be more responsive. Higher education need employers to make that a two-way street so they're working to improve people's lives across the board. And then I think learners have to just be self-aware that they're going to have to manage this as they move forward in life. It's not just, hey, my employer's going to tell me when I need to go back to school or my institution, but I need to really be managing this and understanding where my skill set sits today and when I need to go back and get some formal training and formal education. Yeah, I like that. And we're getting into more of a predictive future-facing frame here for the remainder of our conversation. On previous shows, I've talked a lot about saber learning, which is kind of like saber metric in sports where there's next-gen analytics. I've seen that make it into my fitness routine. So Strava will show me how well I'm riding my bike. And I'm just waiting for this to emerge on the learning side, especially if it could connect to my own longer term goals. If I want to pursue a career in a different field, how do I start accruing competencies and adding them to my badges? And, or if I have almost a, a complete fit for some role, but I'm just unaware of it right now, there's really a lack of transparency around this stuff, which is also why outreach to learners and developing a, a learning identity in all of us is something that is so critical. How do you reach folks who maybe aren't thinking about education or are turned off to it, even tying back to your own origin story? How do we find those folks who maybe have strayed and get them feeling comfortable learning to trust the institutions that can give them the education that they need? How are you grappling with that these days? It's interesting. Marketing is often a dirty word at uh, higher education institutions, especially state institutions. But what we're realizing is you have to really be savvy about how you market to people. And what we want to do, of course, is we want to market to people in a way that's meeting their needs, not meeting the institution's needs, letting them know. It's, it's not just employers, but individuals who have no idea in many cases that there's an adult and continuing education office at almost every university in the country. Mm -hmm. Most of them are not as big as what we have at the University of Washington. We work nationally and globally, but many are very locally focused. But to even know, to pick up the phone and say, let me call that group and see where I'm going. 
It's interesting you mentioned services, and I, I talked a little bit about the idea of an app that might notify you with your skills. So that's maybe a little bit future focused. Mm-hmm. But but I think what you're saying is absolutely right because what we think is digital credentialing is one part of that picture of the 60-year curriculum. We think what we call the meta curriculum, which is all the stuff that you might take over the course of a lifetime, that's another piece. That's a big piece for us in higher ed to think about. But we began to say that learner services are also going to evolve in a different way. So at large institutions, we've already seen, for example, faculty used to do everything. Advising, they used to do, you know, help the students get their dorm rooms. And now we have increasing specialists that do specialized advising. Advising is now breaking into subspecialties. So I have an enrollment services coaching team. I have a different retention team. This used to all be advising and it used to all be under faculty. We're seeing a differentiation of services that are necessary because as you start to serve people across a longer life and a broader swath in a more equitable way, you have to have different services to meet their needs over time. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about future facing, I have a couple of things that we speculate could start to evolve over time. And it's exactly what you're talking about. So I've started to say, okay, great. We have somebody that can help you when you know you're ready, but should we have a learning concierge mm-hmm. who's always there, who you could turn to and say, is it time? What's happening? What's going on at the university today? And it might shock you, right? So right now you have to go find that out on your own, but having things that help make it easier for people to engage with us when they need to, some of that will be automated. Yeah. A lot of this is about a human connection, right? Making a human connection with people and helping them to understand how college can be for them today, how they can college the system that they might've thought when they were 18 was not built for them in the same way I thought that way. The system has changed and there are lots of ways into it that work for you and, you know, you don't have to engage with the system in the way that makes you uncomfortable. There are lots of job training programs and lots of exciting ways now that you can look at how even major research universities, but certainly community colleges and regional universities are providing a lot of this programming. But when we talk about this idea of future-focused services, learning concierge is one. You mentioned another one, but I'll play off that one a little bit more and say, we, we have just launched last year a program in genetics counseling. And genetics counseling, it's a really unique field. It requires a medical school to be able to offer this program, very unique master's degree program. We're the first on the West Coast to have this. So everybody doing genetics counseling in Seattle has come from East Coast school until recently. And what genetics counselors do, doctors no longer have the skills or the knowledge to understand the data at the depth of what's being created by the new field of genetics, because you can create so much data. And so a genetics counselor has to be able to understand all of the aspects of genetics and what all of these markers mean. They also have to be part social worker yeah, because you're going to hear things that might be really challenging or even devastating to you and your family. You've got to be ready to deal with that. You've got to be part intervention specialist. I'm like, okay, now that we know this, maybe there's nothing you need to do, or maybe there's something you need to start doing. Mm-hmm. I would argue that we might need a learning records counselor in higher education and for adult learning because we're now going to be getting so much data and we have so much data. We don't expose it today, but these new apps that we're talking about, I was saying to some of our folks, like, what if somebody sat down with you and said, do you realize that based on what we can see in your learning style, you might be more successful in approaching higher education from a more grounded perspective, or you might be Uh, in in a better place if you started with a more theoretical perspective, because this is what you're trying to be able to do. And we could see in your learning data patterns that could influence a more successful outcome as we move forward. So I think future focus, there's going to be a lot of that data. A lot of that will hopefully be automated because people won't have the time to do that. But for the same reason, we need genetics counselors. I think we're going to have people who can sit down and be part social worker, part technical bureaucrat and part intervention specialist 
that can help people really make sense of the data they're going to have soon about the way they learn, what they've learned, how they've learned, and what opportunities are then in front of them as a result of uh, what they already have in place. So that's an exciting, I think, future-focused place. I think the other future-focused place that we really talk about that's relevant, and this is what we hear, is 74% of college students today are non-traditional in at least one way. I would argue that 90% of our laws and rules are still built as if people are 18 to 22. And so the other big area for the future that we have to think about is funding and policy and how we're going to make this actually work for people so they can afford it. Mm -hmm. Sitting down, one of our student reporters, a junior in journalism, and she was just doing an information piece about Continuum College for undergraduates. Why does a typical undergraduate need to care about something like Continuum College? And I say, because you're going to have to keep learning throughout your entire lifetime. You might be graduating from this part of the academy. I will see you in a few years when you're ready to retool. Much like the anxiety over a long life, this was not a happy conversation for this young woman. She was like, wait a minute. She dropped out of reporter mode and went into student mode and said, I can't even afford to pay for my senior year. And now you're telling me I've got to keep going back to school and retooling over a lifetime. So I think funding and how we think about funding and policy is going to be another big future direction here mm. in, in the way we have to consider learning over a lifetime. It's not just 18 to 24. can't be a bolus uh, amount of education in one place and all the money goes to that one place uh, for someone's lifetime. But how are people going to come back and retool? It's going to be a new social compact between employers government and the learners themselves, right? We're going to have to find a different way. Some of it will be employer paid. Some of it will be the government. And some of it, I think the individuals are going to have to be aware that it will be an investment, just like thinking about retirement or planning for your child's college. You need to plan for your own retooling over the course of a lifetime. So that's less exciting about the future, but I think it's absolutely critical for us to get to the future is to really look at the hard-nosed issues around the way the system operates today. Make sure that's not preventing people from using some of the great new educational opportunities and the technologies that are evolving to really help people learn in this way. Fascinating stuff. Certainly got my wheels turning. One area we haven't talked about, I know you mentioned you're in Seattle. There's some big tech companies I hear maybe based out of Seattle. Big tech is another player that is part of this conversation, a player who's big enough that sometimes it plays with higher ed, sometimes it doesn't. Any thoughts in terms of those trends? They are also some of the bigger employers. What's Amazon doing? What's Google doing? What's Microsoft doing? Any perspective on the role that big tech might have in the future of adult education? We're seeing big tech really come to the table and want to have this conversation. And it's a pendulum, right? So I think it let's really marry ourselves to higher education. Oh, wait a minute. We don't have enough talent. We've got to do it on our own. And then it's swinging back to say, wait, there's a sweet spot here that we really need to work at. I'm super excited about one of our programs. It's available now on the platform Coursera, which is a collaboration between us and Microsoft. And it is a different kind of program to go learn. It is a program from the head of the manufacturing artificial intelligence group at Microsoft really designed to help people who work on the factory floor have agency in their work as it evolves with artificial intelligence. Mm. Now, this is the University of Washington working side by side with leading researchers at our own institution, but also at Microsoft to say the general public needs to understand where we're moving. And it needs to be done in a way that isn't just Microsoft training but it is done in a way that really has an institutional backing and some of the broader educational elements that we might put in there, but it's designed to scale. It can reach tens of thousands of people around the world because that's how many people need this education from Microsoft's perspective 
given the way the world's evolving. So we're seeing that from other big tech companies. We have several other tech companies that are now seeing this. They're coming to us with similar kinds of programs in different areas where, hey, here's this space that we need to really have education engaged with us in so that people can become savvier about how they can use these tools either in their healthcare, in their workplace, uh, in their own personal lives. There's a marriage happening with big tech, I think, in higher ed in some spaces around how we help educate the population better. What I love about this is so much of this is about empowering people and not just taking the tech and saying, uh, let's teach you, let's train you to the tech. But this Microsoft approach that we're talking about, how do we help people co-evolve the technology in a way that works for them and works better for them versus saying, it's here to replace you and take your jobs. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an important part of what I see tech doing. The other thing is for their own employee base, really critical. You know, some of them are moving away from the degree. They're really pushing on the idea of digital and micro-credentialing and some of these spaces. So they, they may be moving faster than other organizations, though I would encourage people to look at what Walmart has done in the digital credentialing space. Absolutely impressive. Every single job at every store now is uh, credentialed down to the level of independent skills and they can train people toward that. Very impressive. But the tech companies are still really leading and pushing on the kinds of systems and approaches that I think companies are going to need to really be able to integrate this into their employee hiring workflows. So I think the tech companies will lead in those spaces. They may lead also in pushing sort of our idea of innovative ways to work with their own workforces. But then I think they also have this role in educating, like how they're beginning to educate populations about technology is also. So really in all those spaces, we're working in combination with tech companies not just tech, but other companies as well. And I think that's going to continue to evolve. So I hope that pendulum stays about where it is today, where we're really starting to work together between higher education and business in new ways to find ways to help educate more people and create a really robust pipeline of talent for um, these companies and create great opportunities for the learners and employees. Awesome. Fantastic stuff from Dr. Rovi Brennan, the vice provost at Continuum College at the University of Washington in Seattle. As we're concluding here, folks need to walk away from this conversation with some takeaways. Katie, sum things up. What are, what did we talk about? What are some actionable takeaways, ideas that people can chew on as this conversation comes to its close? Yeah. So first of all, we're all going to need to uh, retool and re-educate. I think that's really critical. Uh, when I have a problem on my computer, there's usually a 12-year-old on YouTube that tells me how to fix it. That's one way of learning. But we're all going to need formal education, and we're going to need it at different times in our lives than we've expected it before. You have to be an agent in that for yourself. So you really have to look out for yourself in terms of where your skills are and what you might be able to do going forward. Be very active as a learner in your employer situation as well. Ask your employer. Don't be afraid to ask your employer. How can you help develop me? What are the internal programs? What do you support externally? Really be active in that because your development is yours to own, and, and that's really critically important. Understand that higher education today over the last 10 years has exploded with options for adult learners. So if the great recession for higher education was a moment where online learning became a thing and many institutions began to offer degrees in online, the last 10 years since 2012 has been about an explosion of opportunity in non-degree spaces that really is more connected to the workforce. If you haven't looked at higher ed recently, Get out there, call your adult and continuing education office, find out what they're doing that might not be in the mainstream of degree programs, because an entire workforce is now finding their way to retool and regenerate themselves through 
non-traditional programming that sits sometimes quietly off to the side at many of our great institutions, but it's there for people today. And so world of opportunity and learning that is really in front of us for people of all ages, but you have to take advantage of it. You have to be a good agent for your own uh, learning in that respect and just be cognizant that the world's going to change and you're going to have to change with it. Awesome. Great stuff. Yeah. At least until our learning concierges start escorting us through the wonderful learning universe that is emerging. Fantastic conversation, Roby. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. If you did, please subscribe, write us a review, tell your friends, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.